Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those whose hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think I'm unmuted now. Down, down in the city... They don't give us preachers anything like that sort of freedom. Like, I don't get to fiddle with mute buttons down there. They, just, they don't trust us. So I've got confused. Thanks very much. Friends, it really is great to be here with you again. And though we've just read from Matthew's Gospel, we'll circle back to that in a little while because oh, that will also help, won't it? Um, we are going to dive into Esther together. How about I pray for us? Loving Heavenly Father, We thank you for this day when we can gather as your people in the midst of all the to and fro of life, uh, the various things that are filling our minds. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would remind us what it is to be your people, uh, what it is to know your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would teach us uh, to live boldly in light of who we are in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, I've got a few scenarios that I want you to start picturing as we uh, dig into God's Word together. So first, perhaps you're moving house and you're working out what the budget for the new place will be. How far will you stretch to get the place that you really want? Okay, another really brief scenario. Maybe you're applying for a new job and there are some really good options interstate. How do you prioritise, staying or going? Okay, we're keeping them moving. Your son perhaps has the opportunity to to step up to that next level at footy. But it's going to mean playing on a Sunday morning. What are going to be your priorities? Or just, you know, something that happens all the time. You're catching up with workmates, maybe it's the uni friends, over a few drinks after work, the social scene, and the gossip is flying in all directions. What do you chip in with? We are constantly making decisions, aren't we? And some of them feel pretty big and sometimes even the small ones feel like, yeah, they actually really matter. How do we work out which way to go? Sometimes I think we are paralysed with too many choices. Sometimes there just don't seem to be any good options because it just feels like it's lose-lose, whatever you do. But even when it feels like it's win-win, what do you do? We've just read from Matthew's Gospel because we're going to briefly return to that in a little while. But for now, we're going to dive deep into the book of Esther. As we see that at the core, that the big idea, 
of working out how to live in this life is knowing what your identity is. Now, the story of Esther is such a cracking yarn that we are going to read some big chunks of it together. So I'd really love you to open your Bible or pull up the app on your phone. Isn't it great to be able to have the Bible in our pocket wherever we go? Um, Because we're going to read some big chunks together. Today, let me give you just a little bit of context in case uh, last Sunday feels like a long time ago or perhaps you weren't here with us. We're picking up the story of Esther just as the action is really building Chapter 1 and 2 of the story set the scene. God's people are scattered far from home under the pagan king Xerxes in the middle of the mighty Persian Empire. The vanity and the lust of the visible king Xerxes, that is just on full view when he has this massive massive festival. Uh, And then we see it even more vividly when he orders the kidnapping of beautiful women from around his empire to find the one who pleases him most, to make his trophy wife and his queen. Now, our two lead characters, Mordecai and Esther, they've been caught up in this because the beautiful orphan girl Esther is one of those girls taken to the king's palace. And Mordecai the Jew, as we meet him, is her cousin and guardian. Now, through all of this, God has been silent. In fact, he's not even been mentioned once. His promises seem to be forgotten and it almost seems like God himself has gone AWOL. So let's see how the action unfolds. I'm going to read a big chunk from Esther chapter 2 starting in verse 8. And I've realised I left the clicker behind so let me grab that because that'll be useful later on. Can you tell I have small children? Life's a bit of a flurry. Let me read from Esther chapter 2. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Well, Before a young woman's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Or when the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, To go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. 
So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions just as she had done when she was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now we're going to pause here briefly just to note a few things as we make our way through this great story. Now to state the obvious, in case we missed it, Esther has impressed the king. And among all of the other beautiful women of Persia, she has been made his queen. But remember what this meant to Xerxes. She was just his trophy, an object for his pleasure to be rolled out at his whim, just as he'd done with the previous queen Vashti. So in this way, Esther actually remains really vulnerable And we can actually see Mordecai's concern for her, even to the extent that he says, no, 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 remain silent about your Jewish identity. Now, meanwhile, we read there at the end there, Mordecai has been described as sitting at the king's gate. A little hard to see here with the light that we've got, but I just wanted to show you these pictures so that you're aware that this is a story happening in a real part of the world, because even today... If you can get a ticket to Iran, which is quite a challenge, I know, you can go to the ruins of the city of Susa and you can actually see the archaeological site of the King's Gate. It's a massive structure, about 30 metres by 40 metres, well bigger than this building. The point is, it's not just a gate. It's kind of the civic centre of uh, where um, uh, the King's business took place. It's not Mordecai's local hangout. It's actually saying that Mordecai worked in the civil service serving the king's administration. The king's gate was the area where the government and the officials sat to hear complaints and concerns and make decisions. And it's in that role that Mordecai, coincidentally, hears this sort of conspiracy to to assassinate the king and, and passes that on and saves his life. I want to draw our attention to that because we need to remember that as the story moves on. We're about to meet another central character. I'm reading on from chapter 3, verse 1. Well, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hammedatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews. 
throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nyssa, the poor, that is the lot, we might call them the dice, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month and, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people of, of all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors and the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces and the, the order to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Okay, friends, we're pausing a little bit there because there is just a little bit of Bible history that really helps us to understand why there is so much heat between Mordecai and Haman. Why this conflict? So, on the screen behind me, in the books of Exodus and Numbers, we read that when Israel was fleeing Egypt and entering into the Promised Land... The Amalekites were one of the local people groups who opposed them and actually engaged them in battle on a number of occasions with some pretty massive loss of life on both sides. Then, hundreds of years later, when Saul had become king of Israel, God commanded him to execute justice on the Amalekites by defeating them in battle. Now, Saul obeyed and he was victorious, but he actually disobeyed God's instruction in part because he failed to destroy them all. And in particular, Saul kept on to the plunder of the battle. He kept the best of the things alive, including their king. And that king's name was Agag. When God's prophet Samuel learned about Saul's disobedience, well, he took action to see that God's instructions were obeyed properly and he killed King Agag right there and then and there. And we can read about that in 1 Samuel 15. It's pretty gory stuff, but the significance of it for today is that as history goes on, it demonstrates that the descendants of King Agag, known as the Agagites, they held on to a deep-seated grudge against the Jewish people and their God. And we learnt last week, when we met Mordecai, that he came from the same clan as King Saul. And Haman, who we have just met, is an Agagite. They've got family history. 
Haman has the power to follow through on his rage. And so now identifying with God's people is very risky. We've just seen that even though Mordecai has been open about his own Jewish heritage, he's specifically told Esther to keep hers secret. And we're going to see how that unfolds. But before we continue though, one more thing to note. The action is about to slow down a lot. Now, you might remember that Esther, the book of Esther, began in the third year of Xerxes' reign. Well, it's so easy to skip over the little time markers along the way. In chapter 2, verse 16, we just read that Esther's fateful night with the king, that was in the seventh year of his reign. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, well, Haman's evil plot, we're told that took place five years later in the twelfth year of Xerxes' reign. Point being, it's taken nine years to get to the end of chapter 3. But now we slow right down. The start of chapter 4 all the way through to the end of chapter 8, it takes place in just five days. You don't have to be a movie maker like Luke Whistle to know that actually Hollywood blockbusters do this all the time, right? They, they slow the action down, they zoom us in to, to see the really intricate details that we're going to need to know to make, make sense of just how significant these events are. So let's have a read. Picking up chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter into it. Now in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him. For her people. Well, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death, unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, friends, we could keep reading. It's a wonderful story, but we're going to stop there. As good as this story is, I want to pause here because this is, this is kind of the big pivot point in the whole story. And so it's good to highlight what God is saying to us through it. As we come to this climactic point, there's a few really helpful things to observe. You see, we've already seen that identifying with God's people, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And Mordecai has put himself right at the centre of Haman's sights. And so we're kind of left wondering, well, what will Esther do? So far, she's remained quiet about being a Jewish person. But now she's faced with a dilemma. Does she stay hidden and watch her people perish, knowing that it will only take a moment of indiscretion and the cat will be out of the bag, her identity will be revealed, and then she'll be destroyed? Or does she come out, identify with God's people, and try and use her position as queen to protect her people? But we've actually already seen just how unpredictable this King Xerxes is. Who can know how it will all play out, right? Well, actually, that's another point that is helpful to note. Who can know? Because God still hasn't been mentioned. But the story is told in such a way that we're meant to see that there are actually people who who know God is there and they trust that he knows and cares, people like Mordecai. So we've got a lot of detail there about his reaction with with sackcloth and ashes and bitter wailing there at the start of chapter 4. That's not just some sort of public display of of grief. You know, in an age before Facebook, this is how you just broadcast my my emotional status at the moment. No, this this is a public display of prayer. You see, throughout the Old Testament, this kind of public behaviour, it just demonstrates repentance, humbly calling on God for his help, even though you're acknowledging that it's, it's, it's not deserved. And so in the same way, there in verse 3, we've got this snapshot of the mourning of the Jews throughout the whole entire empire. That's not just grief, it's prayer. Fasting, weeping, wailing, sackcloth and ashes tells us that. These people trust that God sees and he knows and he cares. We even see that Esther's own moment of decision, well, that's associated with prayer. When, when she tells Mordecai that she will fast and gets him to fast for her in that, well, she's asking Mordecai to pray for her. So who do, does know how all of this will play out? Well, the narrator of this story, just so brilliantly written, wants us to see that even though God's not been mentioned, he is behind all of this and, and he actually does know how this will play out. His people are praying to him. They are expressing their trust in him. And I think that helps us to understand those final words of Mordecai and Esther's conversation. Imagine the busy servant you know, back and forth with all of these messages. Well, verse 13 and 14 of what we've just read from chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 They are the only words of Mordecai recorded for us in this whole book. And that should catch our attention and think, this is really important. What he says here will matter. Mordecai effectively says three things to Esther. In verse 13, Mordecai warns Esther, don't think you can remain hidden as one of God's people. But in doing so, he's effectively asking a question of Esther, right? Which identity will define you? Remember, she has two names, Hadassah, her Jewish name, Esther, her Persian name. 
Is she going to be a woman of God or a woman of the world? Then, in the first half of verse 14, Mordecai expresses his deep trust in God. Did you notice his words? If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. So Mordecai demonstrates that God has promised to to care for his people, to restore them to his place and under the rule of his king. They are his promises, which, which for those promises to stand, God must send relief and deliverance somehow. So even if it's not through you, he says to Esther, it will still come. And so he reminds Esther that the God of Israel is even more powerful than all of the might of this visible dictator Xerxes. God is the true king who saves his people and he can be trusted. And then thirdly, in the second half of verse 14, Mordecai challenges Esther to act. Knowing that God is the true king who stands behind the events of our lives, that frees us to to trust in him and and to act in light of it. Who knows, Mordecai asks Esther, you you and I don't know, but the hidden God knows. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That's why I've called this series for such a time as this, because each of us need to reflect on the time and the place that we are in and the God who stands behind it. This royal position that Esther had that was such a mixture of, on the one hand, just just opulence and extravagance and yet oppression, where Esther was so protected and yet at the same time so vulnerable. Mordecai says to her, this is your situation, so how will you trust God in it? Now that's the key question Mordecai poses to Esther. You don't know how things will pan out, but you do know the God who is faithful to his promises. So will you identify with him and act accordingly? Or are you going to try and remain silent and suffer the consequences? And the transformation that follows in Esther is truly remarkable. If you haven't had a chance to read it yet, read it when you get home this afternoon. Up to this point, Esther, she's just been taking instructions from everyone. But from here, well, she starts giving them out and and ultimately to King Xerxes himself. Up to this point, Esther has been quiet about her identity as one of God's people, But here, well, did you notice she invited her attendants to join her in prayer? That's kind of subtly coming out to them. But in just a few days' time, as the story goes on, she will disclose her identity not only to her husband, King Xerxes, but in the very presence of Haman, the man who has vowed to destroy God's people. And so that's the story so far. We should be asking, what is God saying to us through all of this? Well, it's a really helpful rule of thumb when reading the Old Testament that to understand it today, we need to read it in light of Jesus. So to be blunt, you and I, we are called by God to become more like Jesus. We're not supposed to model our lives off Mordecai and Esther. So this is what we don't do. Let's not read Esther and just try and draw the line directly to us and say, well, yeah, I guess I just need to be more like Esther. I just need to be more like Mordecai. Actually, there's some really significant challenges with that. There's, it's hard to work out what the moral is to take from this story. Was Mordecai being wise or foolish when he disobeyed the king's law and refused to honour Haman? I mean, surely we shouldn't be teaching our daughters to kind of, well, you know, follow Esther's example of sleeping with the most powerful man that she can to, to advance herself. 
But on the other hand, what about her courage under pressure? Is that an example to be followed? Which bits do we imitate? I hope you can see that for a bunch of reasons, just trying to draw a direct line from, from, from Esther to us, that's never a good way to handle the Old Testament. But actually, the biggest reason that we need to remember is that you and I, we are not the heroes of this story. God is. And so in this sense, this is the right way to read Esther, through Jesus, to allow the narrator to, to highlight the key themes and we can then see how this starts to point us forward to Jesus and then think about how we live in light of that. So, think through what we've already learnt from Esther. In this sense, we're seeing that Mordecai, he is a man of faith now facing immense persecution for it. That's why we, I highlighted that the record of his good deeds. He, he, he saved the king from an assassination plot and yet that same king has now authorised a death warrant for all God's people, which will include Mordecai. Mordecai points forward to Jesus as the righteous man facing unjust persecution from God's enemies. Then in a similar way, for, for all the moral ambiguity around the woman Esther herself, the key theme relates to her identification with God's people and the danger that it places her in. It's no accident that we were told she has a Jewish name, Hadassah. And she now needs to work out whether she will make a stand with God's people. So Esther herself points forward to Jesus as the courageous mediator on behalf of God's people. And in all of this, God is using the book of Esther like a giant floodlight, just, just beaming in on Jesus so that we can see him more clearly. The book of Esther helps us to appreciate Jesus even more fully because we see that he actually takes these ideas even, even further. Jesus is not just a righteous man suffering persecution. He is the one truly righteous man who is ultimately rejected by humanity and takes upon himself the very judgment of God. Jesus wasn't just a mediator experiencing some vulnerability. He is the one who mediated with such vulnerability that he didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. And he didn't just do it to save his own people, he, did it, he died to save people like you and me who, apart from him, stand against him as his enemies. The book of Esther should help us to see Jesus in all of his glory and, and our first take-home should be to praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ the righteous sufferer mediating for us. But I think God actually uses Esther as it, as it helps us to understand Jesus more to then reflect on, well, what does it look like for me to live like that? Because I'm not the saviour of the world and neither are you. But the book of Esther kind of, it, it gives us some worked examples of real people in the real world actually wrestling with such questions. And, and God then turns the light and he shines it on us and he says, well, in light of Jesus, that you've seen more clearly here, how will you act? Will you identify as one of my people, one of Jesus' disciples? God says, will you trust that I am the promise-keeping God who will bring relief and deliverance for my people, to use Mordecai's words? Will you keep acting in a way that, that, that lines up with your identity as one of my people? This is where I've put you. 
So will you act here as a follower of my son? And that's why we read from Matthew chapter 5 earlier on. I'm not even going to try and unpack that now. I just wanted to have those words of Jesus ringing in our ears and I'd love to encourage you to reflect on them because I simply want to challenge you as I've been challenged myself in the time that I've spent in Esther. Think So often we, face, we find ourselves facing decisions of various kinds and, and I think we, we have a, you know, a thought process that goes, kind of goes something like, well, gee, I wish God would make himself clearer. Perhaps he could send me a sign from heaven or, or that deep sense of peace that I'm longing for. Or maybe just open and close some doors so that my decision would be a bit clearer. You see, we face decisions and either we fail to act because we're waiting for some ultimate clarity or we just go ahead and we act without any real reflection on how God would have us to act as his people. In both ways, we're... We're not reflecting on how our identity as a disciple of Jesus shapes our actions. But that's the core question to ask. How does my identity as one of God's people, a disciple of Jesus, how does my identity shape my response? And Jesus, sorry, God through his word has given us more than enough to work out what that looks like. It's not like there's a hidden message in the Bible about which job to take or how much to spend on the house. You know, the scenarios we thought through earlier. But throughout the Bible, God teaches us again and again and again how our identity as his people shapes our actions. And so from Matthew's Gospel, we could spend hours reflecting on it. But it's all laid out there for us. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. So if you belong to him, mourn. Mourn the reality of sin in your life and and in this world and and all its consequences and take action. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. So, let's act, pursue humility in the way that we conduct ourselves. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. So, let's take action, be merciful, make peace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness So let's take action and and do the right thing, even if that puts you at risk. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, says Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, friends, last week, as, as we got our heads into the world of the book of Esther, we were challenged to trust in the promises of the invisible God. Well, this week, we are called to act, to act in light of who we are as his people, trusting in those promises. Because to use the words of Mordecai, who knows how God will use you in this situation, whatever your situation might be. Actually, there is an answer to that question. Who knows? God does. And he can be trusted. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the, the richness and the beauty of this part of your word, the book of Esther, that shows us such a different time and place and yet one that resonates so clearly with us as we wrestle with what it looks like to identify as one of your people, uh, to stand up even when that will come at risk and, and at cost.
but to stand boldly because we know you and your promises and we know the great joy and privilege that it is to be one of your people. And so, Father, amidst all of the things that might play into our decisions, the big ones and the small ones, please keep teaching us the glory of the Lord Jesus, the wonderful privilege and joy that it is to be counted one of his disciples and how that identity more than anything else in life, is what shapes us to live as your people. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.